welcome everyone to the first episode of what is now our second season of the Framing Money Laundering Podcast or FML Podcast. I'm your co-host Brianna here joined with our other co-host John. We're happy to be hosting you for as long as we've got you whether it's during your commute, your free time, or even that awkward period when you're waiting for your clothes to be dry after the second time of loading them. We're here for you on your good days and even those days where you keep thinking FML. (laughs) All right. It feels like it's been a while since we've talked. Um, Let me catch you up on what's happened so far. Rihanna and I have graduated and are now professionals in the anti-money laundering field. So Brianna herself is currently thriving in her role as a BSA analyst at a local bank in Southern California. I myself am working as an associate analyst with a financial crimes compliance firm in Phoenix area, Arizona. So now that we're a little bit more established, we've had the chance to update our website, improve our sound equipment, as you can hear, and start a blog and attend a forum. Rihanna, would you like to talk a little bit more about that forum? Yeah, absolutely. So this forum was the inaugural Monterey Threat Financing Forum held in March from the 20th to the 22nd, and it was hosted by Middlebury Institute of International Studies, which is the same school where John and I recently graduated. So it was great that we were able to connect with old classmates, old friends, alums, and uh, a bunch of other folks from the public and private sector. Another thing about this forum was that it was also hosted by a new center at the Middlebury Institute called the Countering Terrorism and Extremism Center, or CTEC for short. There was a lot of great things happening at the forum, a lot of great conversations. Uh, As I mentioned before, there are representatives from both the public and private sectors. Conversations that occurred during the forum were varied. There were conversations from cryptocurrencies, counterterrorism financing, proliferation financing, and also how to bolster cooperation between government agencies and private sector agencies, including cryptocurrency exchanges and banks as well. Now, if you didn't have a chance to attend this forum for yourself and are interested in the highlights and key takeaways from this forum, We wrote our first news article, which is available on our website at framingmoneylaundering.org. So definitely check that out. Another interesting part about the forum, if you're interested in this field, is it was a a rather intimate event. You know, it it was very, it was awe-inspiring for me to be able to just walk up to certain federal agents or federal workers or CEOs of certain companies and be able to just talk to them. They were all very open. Um, They had some interesting ideas on how private sector and public partnerships could go and how to innovate better in the case of of a lot of the small companies and and startups. And so it was was overall a great experience. And I would definitely recommend you uh, looking at information on our social media. In addition to our new blog, our new look, and our new sound, We have a couple of new segments um, to our Framing Money Laundering episodes. Uh, These segments will include things such as funny money, where we talk about the strange and crazy schemes that we find on the internet or in newspapers. Hopefully we'll entertain you. They're definitely entertaining for us. And the segment for today actually will be called Guilty or Framed. Now, Guilty or Framed will be an opportunity for you, the listeners, 
to apply your critical thinking skills and you know whatever insights you might glean from our episodes to make a judgment call. So we'll share a scenario with you uh, with limited information and you determine whether this is something you'd investigate further or whether the person, the activity is harmless or whether they are something you should look into a little bit more. When the time comes, listen, take a few moments to think about it and tweet your answer or post it on Facebook with the hashtag guilty or framed. You can find us on Twitter at FML Podcast and on Facebook and LinkedIn. Or if you don't have any of those, email us at fml at framingmoneylaundering.org. Now, if you can explain why you lean one way or the other uh, within just one tweet or post, even better. So, again, you don't have to decide if they're specifically guilty um, with the data you have. You just have to think about whether they're suspicious enough to investigate. So, with all of that, we'll now dive into what you've been waiting for. The Panama Papers. Many of you might be familiar with it. Basically, a trove of documents providing evidence of things that we already knew as a public. Basically, rich people hide their money. Sure. Um, we finally found proof of that, though, in the Panama Papers. So, you know, there have been a couple of world leaders, uh, such as um, some Brazilian politicians, uh, David Cameron in the UK. Quite a few people have been touched by it. We're not going to spill all the beans just yet, but you'll get all that you'll need in the next 30 minutes or so. With that, we'll turn to Brianna for the origin story. Thank you, John. Jürgen Mosak, one of the founders of Mosak Fonseca, was born in Germany and immigrated to Panama with his father at the age of 13. His father was Erhard Mosak, who served as a combat soldier for the Waffen-SS in World War II. The Waffen-SS was a wing of the Nazi party, for those who are unfamiliar. When Mosak and his father moved to Panama, Erhard made an arrangement to spy on communist Cuba for the United States. But this is not a story of a spy or Ken Burns documentary on the U.S. during World War II, nor is it a Marvel comic origin story, ringings of Captain America, anyone? Hmm? This is the story of the Panama Papers. As you can tell from the colorful, if not dark, origins of one of the key founders, the saga of the Panama Papers is quite a tale for the ages. Jürgen Mosak would later go on to receive his law degree from Panama, where he would also meet his future law partner, Ramon Fonseca. Fonseca is no small fish. Panamanian-born, well-educated lawyer, he has published several novels, two of which won the Ricardo Miro Prize, which is a national literary reward in Panama. He has deep, and I mean deep, political connections as well. He served several presidents, including Panama's current president, Juan Varela, and was deputy chairman of the Panamanista governing party. Now that we know about Mossack and Fonseca, what about their firm? The firm makes me think of a John Grisham book. <laughs> Jürgen Mosak and Ramon Fonseca would come together in 1986 to create Mosak Fonseca, or Mosfon for short. From here on out, we'll call it Mosfon and not MF because this is a PG podcast here, folks, despite what some might think about the title of this podcast. But even Mosfon sounds dirty. It just sounds like something you would want to get out of your toes as soon as possible. 
Oh, and as you'll soon hear, there are plenty of folks who wanted to get Mossbond the heck out of their toes, too. Okay. Mossbond grew into a global behemoth with more than 40 offices around the world that employed more than 600 people total at one point. Mossbond was a law firm that offered corporate services. They specialized in commercial law, trust services, investor advisory, international business structures, and they also offered intellectual property protection and maritime law services. But they were best known for creating shell companies and tax havens. On their website, when they still had one, they advertised that they have expertise in the jurisdictions including Belize, Netherlands, Costa Rica, Malta, Hong Kong, Cyprus, BVI, Bahamas, Panama, Seychelles, Samoa, Nevada, Wyoming, the works. So pretty much any and all tax havens you can think of, they knew all about it. Mossbond rarely communicated directly with the ultimate beneficiaries of its work. It corresponded instead with the intermediaries that stood between the firm and the wealthy individual. This arrangement is what allowed Mossbond to operate largely in obscurity for decades. And this is how they did it. Wealthy individuals and corporations go through great lengths to gain revenue, but perhaps even greater lengths to avoid giving up income to the government. So with uh, progressive tax brackets and corporations earning in the billions in the U.S., it's pretty easy to imagine what enormous sums of tax money those corporations would need to spend. So this offshore sector in which Masek and Fonseca operates includes law and accounting firms, um, investment services and banks especially. And these organizations, these, these firms, need only to charge significantly lower fees than the taxes would be, you know, basic uh, economics. So if the taxes paid would have been in the 10 million range, for example, then the offshore experts would still be cutting the competition down by a wide margin and earning in the millions. You can see why this might be a lucrative option for some. These experts provide secrecy and security to the funds of these individuals and corporations and make fortunes in return. For the perspective of the offshore community, they're simply outbidding the competition. If the competition could outlaw you from doing business from anyone else and freeze your assets, that is, uh, the government. <laughs> uh, but in their minds, they're simply saving their wealthy clients as much money as possible, a common practice in any business or financial sector. So these are some of the services provided, as Brianna mentioned, creating shell companies, offshore banking, lending, etc. We're going to focus mostly on the shell companies. So uh, Mosfon had been concealing multiple companies and their assets from law authorities for decades. So one question might be, how are they able to cover up networks like the Russian oligarchs, the FIFA officials, uh, other money launderers, terrorist financing? So in addition to their many other services, they sell these anonymized shell companies, which allows those individuals or entities to perfect their identity throughout the financial system as they operate. How would this service stand up to current KYC methods, or if you remember our first episode, know your customer requirements that banks have? Well, Mosfon has a pretty good solution for that too. They have, along with those shell companies they provide, the services of fake directors for those companies. 
Now, I understand it seems a little simplistic, but it worked so well in a variety of circumstances. They use these directors to keep the slush accounts anonymous, which uh, was the method that Siemens Bank laundered money in Germany. The suspected Al-Qaeda supporters in Saudi Arabia and Putin's cronies in Russia, to name just a few. So above all else, Mosfond provided secrecy for its clients. We're going to dig in a little bit more to how these directors might work. So here's an example. You find yourself with a lot of money on your hands, lots of cash. Let's say it's a corrupt relative that suddenly died and is leaving you with their will. You've got to find a tax haven. So you're looking for a tax haven. Hmm, is it going to be Seychelles? Is it going to be Nevada? Is it going to be Delaware? Where are you going to go? Well, in the case of the Panama Papers, the most common was the British Virgin Islands. By a wide margin, that was the most popular tax haven for the Panama Papers leak. So you open a bank account under the shell company name that was provided to you by your good friends at Mosfon. Now, this entity name would give you far more privileges than if you'd simply just tried a different identity or an alias. You'd have tax deductions for being a corporation, for example, and it adds just another layer of obscurity to your already convoluted path. Now, to seal the deal, are you going to name a friend as the nominee? Well, it's possible. People have done that. But it's far more effective for a service like Mosfond to provide that fake director for you. So that director would often be someone local to that jurisdiction, so it looks even less suspicious as the authorities try to look into your activity. That local, that appointed director, um, is paid a, a very nice sum by services like Mosfon, and they don't even have to pretend to be ignorant to your dealings, because like Brianna mentioned, Mosfon deals with your intermediaries, not with you. And on the other end, the director deals with Mosfon, not you or your intermediaries. So there are a lot of different layers of obscurity and, and, uh, and a disconnect between you and the ultimate director of the company. So as law enforcement search in, they find that person, they question him, you won't even need to pretend. He'll have no idea what your business dealings are. The legality of the offshore world hinges on tax avoidance and tax evasion. Tax avoidance is perfectly legal. Um, we talked a little bit about this in our previous episode, but uh, just to give you an idea, it's more of just arranging finances to minimize the payments required within the law, whereas evasion is actually underpayment of taxes illegally. And you can see how these shell services with the appointed director would make it so much easier to misrepresent your assets and therefore your taxes. But again, there's always two sides to every coin. So while we will see that as avoidance of paying a taxes that would support public services, many in the capitalist school of thought would think that the ultimate goal of this is to boost the economy via the extra jobs the corporation would provide with that extra money they take in. So tax avoidance is a really gray area. We're not going to go into that anymore. Our focus will be on tax evasion specifically. With all these tools at their disposal, speaking of the offshore community, 
what chance is there for law enforcement, for regulators to distinguish between those two in terms of these secret shell companies? And why does it matter, especially in tax avoidance instances? And again, that's, that's a little too big of an issue to tackle when it comes to tax avoidance. But I can definitively say that these legal tax laws and loopholes, whether legitimate or not, are exploited by criminals to facilitate bribery, money laundering, and other forms of corruption. And that's exactly what we're about at Framing Money Laundering Podcast. We may not have the means or aims to persuade powerful and different entities to use their abundance to help those who are struggling, but we can call out the destructive techniques whereby criminals are taking advantage of the financial system. We hope you've enjoyed this first installment of Panama Papers. This next section we're getting into is called Guilty or Framed. Just to remind you, I'm going to share a scenario with you based on the clues you give, or I give you, you determine whether the individual conducting these transactions is suspicious or not. So, in a professional role, you wouldn't want to jump to conclusions, but sometimes less information is available than you'd like. There are information sharing methods in place between banks, but more often than not, a snap decision needs to be made on the information you have. Justifying as best as you can with the support you have, the data that you have. So we'll tell you what the actual decision will be in our next episode, but keep in mind that contrary to what the name of the game suggests, you don't actually have to decide whether this person is guilty, what their sentence is, any of that. No, your job is simply just to decide whether it's suspicious enough to investigate further. We made the name for the pun and we're standing by it. Thus, <laughs> the answers may vary and the ultimate decision may be made subjective at times. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's actually get into it. This particular scenario is based on an actual alert that I reviewed just this year for a client. So uh, the names, the institutions, values, everything has been withheld for um, protecting the processing financial institutions and all of that. So for simplicity's sake, um, the transactions for the scenario are all in US dollars as well. So yeah, just, just keep that in mind. Keep in mind that not every detail is a clue or even relevant necessarily. So that's something you have to sift through as well. A man in the Southeast U.S. in his 30s holds a bank account with a national bank. The algorithm for the particular client that you're working with, the financial institution, alerts his activity for excessive ATM withdrawals outside the U.S., the withdrawals that caused the alert were made at ATMs located in northeastern China, and there were six of them over four days. The sum was about $5,000. So you know, a cursory review of the account shows that the account holder made withdrawals in a similar pattern the next month, this time in a southern province of China. All previous and current residences of the account holder were found to be in the same state in Kentucky, USA. So uh, well, let's talk about this a little bit. Do you find any of this unusual already? What more information would you want to know regarding his whereabouts, the activity which caused the alert? Um, is there anything that strikes you as odd? Or do you think this is a waste of time? Think about these things as, as you're hearing the details. 
you also notice some other transactions listed in the transaction history that are definitely the names of Asian countries or cities, but not Chinese. So uh, you do a quick Google search, you realize that they are locations in Thailand. Now that you know that the account holder transacted in Thailand, you consider what he wouldn't give for some pad thai at this instant. You <laughs> regain your composure. A Google search shows that the distance from the east city in China to be a, about eight hours flight to the city in Thailand, and the city in southern China to be a four hour flight from Thailand. You determine then that it's reasonable that the same person could have conducted those transactions in all three locations. Think about what your next step would be. Even listeners who aren't interested in AML as a profession, yes, training helps a lot, but don't discount the power of your critical thinking. A week prior to the withdrawals, the account received a wire valuing in the tens of thousands of US dollars through a bank based in Bermuda. The originator was a limited liability company from California with no clear match in the Secretary of State's business registry. You run a Google search and find multiple listings with similar names. One is a religious ministry, another a microloan service, the other capital investing service. So with all that information, uh, what do we know about Bermuda specifically? Does that name strike a chord with you? Why might it be concerning that those funds were sent through Bermuda as opposed to some other jurisdiction? Bermuda was designated as a tax haven by the EU as of March 11th, 2014. Tax havens, again, those are those locations where laws, compliance, and oversight are lax regarding financial reporting, especially when it comes to tax evasion. So due to these conditions, Bermuda is a little bit concerning. So why did I mention the Secretary of State Business Registry earlier? What's the importance there? Well, this service, this tool, allows one to search for information on the business's beneficial ownership, their legal structure, and verify its incorporation date and location. So we talked a little bit about beneficial ownership in our very first episode, but here it's especially important because it lets us know who the original owner is. Once you get past all the different shell companies, you can see what the origin is. So this definitely helps uh, the legal structure, of course, if it's a limited liability company, honestly is the, the favorite structure for, for shell companies. Again, shell companies, those are companies on paper only. So they can have an incorporation date, certainly, but the beneficial ownership is something that we can use to determine whether it's legal, who it might be connected to, and follow that up the chain. So yeah, if a company's only recently formed, has little activity and scarce online presence, it might very well be a shell company. And the Secretary of State search can help you identify that. That's just another piece of data that you've got to sift through. I'm not going to say anything more about that. So you evaluate the details of this scenario. There's somebody withdrawing cash, traveling between various countries in Southeast Asia, receives funding from an entity from California through a bank in Bermuda. And because your decision has no consequence on this person's life, feel free to speculate a little bit who fits best from the Google results? Which of those businesses? Do you imagine this, this person, the subject of the investigation, being a zealous evangelist with the religious organization you saw in the Google search? 
trying to find a way to teach the good word in China. Do you imagine a microfinancier partnering with developers in Thailand or rural China? Perhaps a venture capital company sending an agent to see their partners in person. Do any of these fit? Can you imagine a profession or reason that fits better? So with all of those questions, here comes the final. Guilty or framed? Would you want to investigate this further or do you think it'd be a waste of time or resources? Again, let us know on social media or on email and on our next episode, we'll give you the decision. But the conversation doesn't have to stop here. With any answers to these questions, especially the last or questions of your own, please feel free to comment on our Facebook page and send us a tweet with the hashtag guilty or framed. And yes, we love our fans. Yes, we're excited for your questions. But no, I don't love you enough to divulge any confidential information related to the actual investigations. Sorry, not sorry. That concludes the <laughs> session of guilty or framed. Thank you so much. We'll have our next half of the episode released within three days. In our upcoming second portion of the Panama Papers episode, we'll go into the consequences of the Panama Papers themselves. What happened with Moss Bond? What happened to all those who were ousted? And we'll have a very special guest. So stay tuned for all of that. And as always, thank you for joining us and for sticking it out with us as we relaunch and dive into our second season of the Framing Money Laundering podcast. Song is titled No Cadillac by Loyalty Freak Music, provided by Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. You can follow us on Twitter at FML Podcast and find us on Facebook and LinkedIn under Framing Money Laundering. We'd love to hear from you, so once you hit that follow button, feel free to say hi. You can also email us at fml at framingmoneylaundering.org, as well as check out additional content, including blogs and news articles, at our website at framingmoneylaundering.org. That's framingmoneylaundering.org.